This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Bandwidth brought to you by Pelgrane Press. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Playtesting 101. Louise Page Morris. When to write long. And germ denialism. Robin, what's better than dinosaurs? Hmm, I don't think there is anything better than dinosaurs. How about dinosaurs plus 5e? Sold! Well, get ready, because the 5e prehistoric campaign setting Plangea is coming to Kickstarter in September from Atlas Games. Wait. Didn't they make Niambi and Northern Crown too? Yes, for third edition, plus Penumbra, so you know it's going to be excellent. Tell me more. Plangea is the prehistoric fantasy campaign setting for 5e, offering endless adventures in a vast, brutal world. Discover a world of raw action, primordial horror, and mystic awe. It has everything you love about 5e, but reimagined for a primal, prehistoric world. Plus dinosaurs. Live on Kickstarter, September 7th, through October 7th. Sign up for your plain Gia Kickstarter launch reminder at atlas-games.com slash plain Gia. That's plain as an airplane, then G-E-A. So it's time once more to uh, kick off with Preamble Hut, and this time, as is sometimes the case, it's a uh, sad occasion because we need to uh, mark uh, the passing of a couple of important figures in tabletop role-playing, starting out with the designer of one of the most influential and uh, possibly other than D&D still most played role-playing game engines, Steve Perrin, and also, uh, Ken, a role model for you. Yeah, Steve was nice enough to allow me to consider myself his colleague. I met him repeatedly at Dundracon, which was a convention that he helped organize and ran for forever. And one of the many things that he did for Dundracon was say that if Ken got out to California in February, Dundracon would put him up in a hotel room and make him do panels, which was a beautiful gesture on his part. And, and that's the kind of great guy that he was. You looked at his design for RuneQuest, the sort of the elegance of it and the power, the fact you could do so many different things with it, as was demonstrated by the fact that it became the engine for Call of Cthulhu, for Stormbringer, for his own super world, for a bunch of other different games. He invented skill-based role-playing, basically. That was his innovation, and he did it from Dungeons & Dragons, which is, you know, very much like, you know, gold from lead in 1976, as far as I'm concerned. And then just a terrific guy, just super, super pleasant, super unassuming. I think he was not recognized as much as was his due, because obviously there should have been parades and spotlights wherever he was. But, you know, if you know, you know. And Steve Perrin was president at the creation. He was uh, the guy whose Perrin conventions translated Gary's Chicken Scratch for uh, um, zillions of uh, gamers eventually, and certainly for all the gamers on the West Coast, which include, of course, you know, Greg Stafford and other figures that went on to drive the industry forward. So really, you know, Steve Perrin is the is the linchpin that turned this from a dumb thing Wargamers did to a global art form. And you, you can't overstate his contributions, and you certainly can't overstate the degree to which he was very welcoming, very generous with his 
time with his resources with, with everything he was just a terrific uh, human being quiet soft-spoken uh, he was also heavily involved in the uh, society for creative anachronism yes and you which can I see believe that he helped found that as well in runequest <laughs> as uh, you know the uh, emphasis on where you get hit and <laughs> how often you get hit in the legs uh, mm -hmm. is definitely a part of that and it was great to see uh, in the last time the Ennies were live that Steve got to take the stage with the rest of the Chaosium crew and uh, accept a gold medal for the new iteration of RuneQuest. So it was uh, really lovely to see him recognized. We also lost the writer and illustrator Blair Reynolds, who defined the uh, visual look of early pagan publishing and therefore of uh, Delta Green and uh, therefore also the, I think in a lot of ways, the look and feel of tabletop role-playing horror in the early 90s. He was not someone you ran into at conventions. And no. if you uh, hear the pagan troika tell tales of Blair Reynolds, they're all extremely vivid. Yeah. We also, I think, don't look enough at the contributions of uh, illustrators on the visual side of uh, tabletop. So I thought it was important also to mention Blair Reynolds. Yeah, I think that uh, Blair Reynolds and Tim Bradstreet between them basically define, as you say, 90s horror role-playing, the look of it. And Blair had a vision that, you know, you could have read Lovecraft for decades as I had and written whole Lovecraft games and you didn't even see a tenth of the creepy stuff Blair saw. And then he would draw it for you, which was the worst part of it all, really, and the best. Quite a guy from every telling. I never met him. Uh, as you say, he was not a, a in our game convention circles. He was off doing his own thing and uh, taken too soon. And on that note, I guess remember to celebrate people while they're here. And uh, let's move on with the show. The thump of dice, the rattle of miniatures, the swish of... No, that's, that's wrong. The rattle of dice, the crunch of miniatures... That's right, because miniatures are crunchy. Uh, right. The thump think, of no, hold on. Did, did me, you check the the math to see if it no, still matches yeah. the example though? Let me let me reiterate this again. I'm sorry, Robin. We we're going. This is an alpha. This we're, we'll okay. fix it. We'll fix it in the edits. Um, the rattle of dice, the thump of br oh, oh, now now I forgot more thumping. Let me check through the notes. The rattle of dice, the thump of miniatures, the crunch of Doritos, and the malevolent gaze of Peter Frampton coming alive. Welcome us once more to the Gaming Hut, and as that iterated opening may have let you know, we are here to answer a question from beloved Patreon backer, VR Weather. It's not so much a question as a topic suggestion, which is almost better than a question, really. Certainly, VR Weather has, has no reason to uh, feel anything but proud, because they've suggested we talk about playtesting, a topic that we've mentioned, I think, many times, but never just sort of given the straight-up 101, how do you playtest a role-playing game? Robin, how do yeah. you playtest a role-playing yeah, game? Yeah, we've come at this obliquely before, and we may be repeating things, but here here we go. So, playtesting, of course, is absolutely essential for any tabletop game, role-playing or otherwise, and uh, getting it right is a matter of uh, some trial and error and some experience. So let's give you the benefit of our experience. Uh, the first bit of advice that I would give is uh, whenever possible, if there is a team of people, it is ideal for someone other than you, the designer, to be the one who's actually directly in contact with the playtesters. And therefore, that allows a distance between the people who you rely on absolutely to give you great feedback and yourself because you want 
something out of this, certain information. And very often the people who are the really keenest people who uh, really want to do something are themselves a kind of armchair designers or they want to be in on the process of deciding what the mission of the game is or the design of the game, or they just want to turn it more into their style of game that they would play it at home. And that's not really what you're looking for. You're not looking for a focus group, but instead you want to know how things went at the table. So I'm less engaged with uh, someone's opinion of the experience than with just the simple fact that, oh, no, the monsters were too tough. We all got killed. Or I just don't even understand what this bit of the rules says. Or uh, the uh, example doesn't agree with the text, which is it. So you're often looking for very practical sorts of things. And you want to be able to sort of in the back of your mind, be aware of how people react, because if everybody wants it to be a completely different game, maybe then that you rethink it. And what you're trying to sort of screen out is a sort of level of personal obligation that allows people to try and change your mission by making emotional petitions to you. And so having a playtest coordinator who's actually in contact with people and having a buffer between you and them is an important step in keeping that distance so that you're really just looking at what's best for the game and not trying to please a group of enthusiastic people with disparate needs. Because the crucial thing about playtesting is not, although you should also obviously have iterated the game at your own table or at a convention table or, or some other way so that you are at least aware of how it plays on the table and it's not just a purely mental exercise for you, but the crucial thing is for the game to be runnable by people who are not you. And that is the most important part of playtesting is you know, the sort of uh, what they call blind playtesting, where it's, you know, exposed to somebody and they run it and play it and they don't have you there to, you know, hold their hand on Skype or explain what you meant by that one, you know, flanking bonus or whatever. And the the purpose of it, the actual utility comes from your words and your engine meeting the outside world. And the more of that you do, by and large, the better results you get back because you'll get a bunch of chaff regardless, but the chance that you'll get actual gold goes way up. The more people you have play testing and even chaff, once it overlaps, if every single group gives you the same to your mind, ridiculous response, that still means you have to fix it. That means it is not the children who are wrong. It is you uh, game designer Skinner. And that is uh, your, that is your gig. And so, and also obviously play test with as many different kinds of groups as you can. So if your game is, is meant for horror fans, try and play test, not just with fans of say, you know, call of Cthulhu, but also fans of vampire fans of unknown armies, fans of other horror games, try and get a, as much telemetry as you can in uh, my buddy, Will. Behind March's great word, as much telemetry as you can back from different sources. And similarly, you know, if you've got tables that are more women than men, try and get uh, them to play test. You want as many potential receivers to give you the answer now before you put it out there and have to, you know, pay for a second print run to fix things. Then, right. But you have to also target people who are gettable. Yeah, you don't want right. to have people who would never play your game, yeah. whether those are uh, in this case, not horror fans at all. So the right, feedback yeah. is, well, we really dislike horror and uh, we found this horrifying and scary <laughs> and that's bad. Yeah. That's useless. And something you'll also run into is there's 
if you get people who are have played the same one trad game for 30 years <laughs> to pick a game at the random response is going to be but why isn't it call of cthulhu i right. would much prefer this if this was call of cthulhu and <laughs> that also is like your uh, you may discover uh, perhaps retroactively that you've wasted their time as well as yours i just want to underline something that you uh, quickly said and say it with more emphasis which is make sure it's an absolutely runnable playable version of the game with your own group or with you running it before you even contemplate blind playtesting. Because yeah, right. if it's a thought exercise, it will be utterly screwed. Mm-hmm. <laughs> as yeah. as, like w- whenever you first play something, unless it's like a, you know, a standard iteration of, or like an iteration of something you're very familiar with. Like I don't play a new gumshoe game for the first time and have that utterly fall apart. Mm-hmm. But other games will, you know, something's brand new that'll fall apart when you first play it. So have it fall apart at your own table before again, wasting the time of your playtest coordinator and, your uh, playtesters themselves. And Robin, you have been very good about not saying the thing you always say about playtesting, so I'm going to say it, which is that you contend that whenever a playtester, Modulo, a decent playtester, picks up on a problem, they're correct, but their solution is never correct. Uh, do you want to expand on that and uh, what right. that means for the uh, game designer, you know, in the trenches? Right. So almost always, the, especially an aspiring a game designer will give you a fix for the problem. And it's almost always too complicated and a thing that doesn't take into account all the other moving parts that go into that. Mm -hmm. And you will be tempted to go, well, that's too complicated and it doesn't take into account these other three things and then discard the issue. But instead they're just telling you of something that needs to be fixed and ignore their solution, but their description of the problem, whether it's that the, Uh, fights are confusing or the monsters are too tough or it's not fun to lie on the ground dying for six rounds as your uh, (laughs) combat activity all of those things look for the valid complaint but find your own solution to that another thing i always say about playtesting is this goes back to organizing communications which is all important is don't create a forum for different playtest groups to talk to each other. Because you may think, oh, this is a great thing to do because it'll create a community. There'll be people ready to hit the ground running and play and promote the game when it comes out. And But what happens is that the playtester who's the best at arguing will convince everybody else in the group that the game needs to go in a particular uh, direction. And that is a problem for a couple of reasons. One, the fact that they want to take your game in a different direction is not <laughs> what you're looking for from a playtester. And you will then be unable to rely on the perceptions of everybody who's been in contact with that opinionated, skilled debater, and that will cause problems. You want everybody to come at it as fresh as they possibly can. And so uh, don't create a community for them until after the game is in its late stage where the rules are basically locked, whether that's when your Kickstarter is going live or when the book actually comes out, whatever that is, hold off on creating a community. Don't make it playtesting community right yeah the the goal of playtesting is as much as possible to get isolated responses then the goal is to build the community and that can be just as simple as you know thanking your community with a a quick you know a one-shot adventure that you wrote for your game and then you send it to all of them in pdf and you say thanks so much for this this adventure is going up on drive-through you know, feel free to mention that on your social, et cetera, et cetera. But you've, you know, you've done something that will then put them into a community. You've got all their email addresses. That's, you know, that's gold. But 
the point of playtesting is to get as, as I said earlier, as much different telemetry as you possibly can, not just the one loud guy who might be a game designer or might not be a game designer. I guess we should also mention the culture of protospiels. When you're thinking about playing your game, not just for your own group, but you are still interested in running it. Obviously, the old indie game scene around the Forge used to have a, a fairly robust network of mini conventions. Right now, there's protospiels that exist. Metatopia in Morristown is, is maybe the granddaddy of them. But there's uh, protospiels in Amarillo at, I think, ArmadilloCon, but it might be a different board game con, uh, might be one of them. But one of them is a big protospiel uh, thing. Look into it if you're in the area. Sarasota, Ringling College is running a protospiel now. Just look around. Protospiel, for those who are tired of hearing me say protospiel, is basically a place where designers take games that are in process to play with people and receive, you know, face-to-face immediate feedback that violates your principle of insulating yourself from the playtest, but it also lets you get much better response because you can see what is landing or not landing at the table as they're running in a way that you can't from a mediated email text because they might be thinking, oh, that's too mean, or they might be thinking, well, I didn't have a problem, but Angie seemed to have a problem. I'm going to mention it in my, in my report. So... It, it's it's really good if you can, uh, especially for a tabletop role-playing game where the table dynamic, the table chemistry is so important in any version of it. Try to go to a protospiel. Gen Con, once Gen Con is back up at uh, full steam, they have the first exposure, which is a giant protospiel program, and that's uh, very, very easy and accessible to get into. So Right. A, a protospiel is sort of a midway step between in-house testing and blind testing. Mm -hmm. And for in-house testing, and as well, I would imagine, for a a protospiel experience, pay more attention to how the players are reacting while they play, whether you're running it for them or watching someone else do it, Mm -hmm. than what they tell you about it intellectually afterwards. Uh, Because uh, gamers especially are a group of people who will talk themselves out of having had fun. (laughs) And so uh, often they will have a bang up time and embrace the premise and really enjoy it. And at the end go, I don't think I could ever play this game or I have this weird philosophical objection. If you're lucky enough to be watching the game happen, you can just observe and see people's responses and pay attention to how they actually respond rather than to how they think they respond once you get to the end and it sort of hit the uh, kind of uh, focus groupy sort of uh, portion of it. And although you may get some really great advice in that, you may also need to tune that out and compare it more to what people were actually doing at the table. Uh, To move back to blind testing just a little bit, uh, there are a couple of things you should expect when you get feedback in. There'll be a bunch of people who just didn't have time. They maybe ran a session, and so they didn't get very far into it, and, and that's just you know, frustrating, but of course you're asking people to volunteer to play a game for you. And uh, it's hard to get game groups together. It is. And I guess, interestingly, I guess people now who are trying to uh, play test things will have the whole online gaming interface to take into account. And that may change people's responses. It may change how designs go because of course, something that is cool, but has a high handling cost in person may be utterly unbearable in, <laughs> in online. And you may decide to either say, well, you know, we're online now. I'm going to simplify it. Or you may go, oh, well, I'll get back to the table and this elaborate spinner device will work great at the table. People will uh, love it. There's also always someone who really utterly hates everything about your game. Uh, that may be the person who is, has the philosophical objection or wants it to be some other game. But there's always one 
who really, really dislikes it. And you've just got to go, oh, there's the one. And then there's generally nothing of value in that. And uh, you feel sorry that you gave them a bad time by having them play a test game they didn't like. But there's uh, they're so far away from being your target for this that yeah. you, you should not try and satisfy them, especially when the other you know, 95% of the testers uh, liked it the way right. it was. I mean, even the game that satisfies 95% of gamers doesn't satisfy all gamers. So since you're not making that game, yeah, feel free to discard um, strays, I guess. People who either, as you say, have a, a philosophical objection to the whole point of your game or who just don't seem to grok it at all. I mean, not grokking the game is different from not getting how initiative works, right? You know, why would I even do this that's a person you can't help unless maybe you think, oh, I guess the game doesn't explain why we do this, which maybe it doesn't. That's on you. Right. But, you know, how do I do this? That is the playtesters question. And that's what you're looking for. Uh, people who ask that at places that you thought were perfectly clear when you wrote it down at three in the morning. That's one of the big things that you're doing in playtesting is making sure that the game that is in the document you send out is the one that you're currently running for your own group, because very often you will wind up simplifying things or changing them and there will be an older version or bits that disagree with each yeah, other from right. different iterations. And that's a big part of uh, making sure that your uh, document is clear and makes sense. The ultimately annoying thing about the error checking part of playtesting though, is that there will always be somebody who once the book is printed, sees all the errors that all of <laughs> playtesters and editors and everybody else missed. And it's like, why didn't I have that person check? Mm -hmm. And I guess the final thing I would say before we get out is you will also sometimes get people say, well, I didn't have time to play, but here are my reactions nonetheless. <laughs> and a bunch of those may be the sort of, I noticed that the arithmetic doesn't match in the example compared to the rule. That bit is golden. Yeah. But again, if they're just speculating on how they think the game would have gone had they played it, that uh, is them wasting their time, sadly, and you got to make sure that they're not wasting your time. Yeah, unless that person is like Emily Careboss or somebody, you can politely say, thanks a lot for that feedback, and then never talk to them again. But if if someone who is a, you know, a really stellar designer says that, it might be worth taking a look at it. Again, anyone who's a really stellar designer knows that play is different from print, so they will only say that if they're really sure. But if you're lucky enough to... Right. Maybe I used exactly this rule in my game and I had to get rid of it and here's why. Mm -hmm. But that's yeah. a, a high-level thing that's right. different from I didn't play your game and here are my reactions. Right. No, yeah. By and large, you are not lucky enough to have Emily Careboss uh, playtest your game or even read your game. And that's just the fallen world we live in, Robin. That's just how we have to move through this life. Well, I think I've hit the basics. Uh, I think unless you have uh, another point, I think it's time for us to... Uh, test and see if this boat here will get us across this river through the commercial and onto the other side. Let's send a bunch of random gamers ahead in the boat first just to double check. Yeah, we want to make sure that the boat doesn't uh, explode on contact.
You listen to the show. You have the Pelgrane greatest hits. But do you have the deep cuts? From now until Monday, September 6th, you can pick up the Pelgrane deep cut PDF bundle from the Pelgrane shop. At a deep cut price. It includes Skullduggery, the role-playing game of verbal fireworks and sudden reversals. The Guy and Reach, the role-playing game of interstellar vengeance. It's companion, the Guy and Reach Gazetteer, an exhaustive cataloging of the planets and places of Jack Vance's classic science fiction cycle. Owl Hoot Trail, a gritty Clint Eastwood Western set in a hostile fantasy world where the outlaw on the other side of the gulch might be a one-eyed half-elf or ornery Catobulpus. And Lorefinder, merging the action-oriented fantasy rules of the Pathfinder role-playing game with the mystery-solving investigative elegance of Gumshoe. Round them up together, buckaroos. And Space Machiavellians. And Mighty Thude Detectives. For a deep cut of 25% off. That's Skullduggery, The Guy in Reach, The Guy in Reach Gazetteer, Alahoot Trail, and Lorefinder. All together at the Pelgrane Shop at PelgranePress.com. The fingerprint check and the retinal scan tell us that we are once more entering that most secret of huts, the one where the top secret information is stored on microfiche, and of course that is the Tradecraft Hut. And this time around, I thought we would go once again back to the Cold War and uh, to another interesting, colorful uh, CIA figure, this time a woman. Yes, indeed, there were women at the CIA, and uh, perhaps... Uh, the one with the uh, most interesting biography, once again, uh, we're covering something that should be a movie, is Louise Page Morris. And Ken, of course, you are the uh, expert on all things espionage, and you have opened her dossier. I have indeed. And Louise Page Morris, I guess, did the first smart thing for a spy. She it doesn't have a biography of her. She stays out of the out of the record a great deal, so it's a bit of a search. This will necessarily be maybe a bit more of a 20,000-foot view, but here we are. She's born in 1904 in Boston. She comes from Brahmin royalty. Her family was uh, related to the Adamses by marriage, and her mom used to say, well, they were farmers, really. So that's the kind of family she grew up in. She married a guy named John uh, Coco Morris of the Tobacco Morrises, apparently, in yeah. 1923. If you're a dude whose nickname is Coco, you know your your social echelon is pretty pretty pretty, pretty exalted. Well, apparently the marriage was not super happy because she wandered off to become a model, became the Lucky Strike Girl in 1929, did uh, ads for Remington typewriters, and when her mother saw an ad in a magazine with her daughter there in front of a Remington. She said, that's ridiculous. Louise has never even seen a typewriter and <laughs> threatened to cut off her allowance if she didn't stop modeling. She divorces Coco in 1932 and becomes a New York socialite, a gay divorcee, as they used to say back in the day. And she was dating a white Russian when World War II broke out. So she had a Russian language competency, which meant She's rich. She's a socialite. She speaks Russian. Obviously, uh, while Bill Donovan knows her and swoops her up to join the OSS, takes her to London to analyze Soviet intel. Uh, the intel. Right, There's one thing about the spy circles in both the U.S. and U.K. at this point is just how what an incredibly narrow 
social circle people were drawn from. And it's an environment where everybody knows everybody else. So connections are everything. And it's a personal drama where people are well acquainted with each other. Well, it becomes an even bigger personal drama because she sleeps with Bill Donovan. <laughs> I don't know if that is why she becomes deputy chief of the USSR research and analysis section at the OSS or if it's just a coincidence, I feel like it's just a coincidence. I feel she is both very competent and likes to sleep with guys. So that's fine. After the war, she stays on Donovan's string. Basically, he gives her sort of one-off jobs in 1948. He sends her to infiltrate, uh, or actually he sends her to meet a State Department guy uh, who sends her to infiltrate the Congress of American Women. Uh, her report back was, I have met many feather brains, but no communists yet. <laughs> Which shows that she, in her willingness to not find a communist under every bed, she's immediately smarter than nine out of ten other people doing that job. <laughs> well, uh, in her uh, business of infiltrating communists, she meets a guy named Jay Loveston um, and becomes his lover and the closest thing that he or she have to a permanent romantic partner. And Loveston, at this point, I, I have to digress because Loveston does have a biography about him, helped found the Communist Party of America in 1919. Uh, he was a Lithuanian Jewish immigrant, uh, went to City College in New York, got radicalized, helped found the Communist Party, goes to Moscow with the American delegation of the Communist Party in 1928 when they're deciding Bukharin or Stalin. The Americans are all Team Bukharin. And Stalin says, no, nah, it's not a team anymore. And the Americans say, the hell it's not. You're not in charge of us, Stalin. The first and last time anyone ever said that to Stalin, by the way. Yeah, they were safer in America. It was easier to say that there. One black communist refused to shake Stalin's hand. He was so mad at him. So that's maybe the best guy of all. The other American communists go back. Stalin says, Lovestone, you stay here. I have a job for you. And Loveston thinks maybe the job is to be shot and dumped in a crevasse. I will sneak back out of Russia. So he does. So he goes back to America and to his shock, <laughs> the American Communist Party then expels him because he's not on good terms with comrade Stalin. And he's very confused. He founds a communist party called Communist Party Majority and then discovers he is not the majority. <laughs> you never call your organization majority when you're in the majority. Otherwise, it's just implicit. Right. And so then it becomes Communist Party Other, and then it gets a bunch of different names. <laughs> That's just sad. That one, that name is just sad. And wildly, he still is working for the NKVD and the OGPU until 1936, sending back reports on American politics and New York unions and whatnot. Well, they like the reports, and he's hoping someone other than Stalin's going to take over, right? Exactly, and then eventually Bukharin will come back and everything will be cool, and then Bukharin is shot in 1938, and that is the end of his day job as a communist. He shuts down the Communist Party that he's a member or running in 41, probably again, uh, Molotov-Ribbentrop has something to do with that, uh, goes to work for the International Ladies' Garment Workers' Union, and then is plucked from that or sent from that by uh, its runner, uh, it's had a guy named Dubitsky, to the American Federation of Labor, which is the largest union in America and the union that is least happy with communists. And uh, George Meany puts him on something called the Free Trade Union Committee, whose job is to bolster anti-communist organizing in the global labor movement. So obviously Stalin's got the common turn out there radicalizing, you know, the communist party in, in France and Italy and wherever else to 
infiltrate and take over the trade unions in France and Italy and wherever else. At this time, the Americans aren't doing anything, but George Meany doesn't wait around for government to help him. He gives Lovestone a budget to go and build from the ground up anti-communist unions in France, Italy, wherever. And uh, eventually the CIA gets around to saying, well, we should be doing that. And they start paying some of the bills for the Free Trade Union Committee. And that is how Jay Loveston meets James Jesus Angleton, who at that point is a rising star in the CIA and will eventually become, of course, the head of CIA counterintelligence. And it is through Loveston that Louise Page Morris meets Angleton because Loveston introduces her to him on the grounds that, hey, she's pretty smart. Maybe she can help. And Angleton says, well, she's frankly smarter than you. He hires her directly as his sort of personal troubleshooter to go around the world and find things out for him so he doesn't have to trust what the State Department says. Uh, One of his standing orders to her is avoid embassies and that lot. And so, uh, you know, he'd send her to Egypt and say, what do you think of Naguib? Is it him or Nasser? And she comes back and says, uh, Naguib's just a soldier. He's not a politician. He won't be able to govern Egypt. Nasser is dreamy. I think Nasser. And so there you go. He sends her to, you know, Iraq during the Bathist coup to find out what's going on. (laughs) big story there. She goes to Jordan. She goes to Berlin, Italy. She goes to Algeria. She and Jay Loveston are both very anti-colonialist. She meets with the uh, Algerian resistance and tries to convince the Americans to support it. That doesn't work so well. She goes to Pakistan, Indonesia, Japan, Thailand, Taiwan. That's just the places I could find in the various, you know, squibs about her. I'm sure she went lots of other places. Her code name was Martha. And uh, when she was back in New York, uh, she, you know, not to, you know, let Jay Loveston think he owns her. She also sleeps with Henry Cabot Lodge, who is the ambassador to the UN. So she meets everyone at the UN uh, as a result of that uh, liaison, which means that when she's in another country and she needs assistance, she can just call up and say, oh, it's Pagey. We met at this soiree back in New York at the UN. Any way you could get me an interview with this guy or whatever else. And everyone would drop everything to help her because she was delightful. Right. So once again, all about being cozy social circles and all the, all the cocktail parties really mattered. And, mm-hmm. and it was uh, uh, definitely a long running soap opera as well as international intrigue. Yeah. I mean, there's, it's not all cocktail parties. She is in genuine danger on some of those missions. Yeah. You know, there's guys that want to kill her in Pakistan and all she does is just read the Quran while they're discussing whether or not to kill her. And they like get, you know, embarrassed and go away, <laughs> that kind of thing. So she's. So what I'm, I'm hearing is this: this should not be a movie. This should be a TV series. There's this too much for one movie. Should be a TV series. She is a uh, serially exciting. Certainly, uh, her cover is that she's a librarian. Of course, she's an unmarried woman. What else could she be doing? Uh, she works uh, for the or runs the Gompers Research Library, which is a bunch of books that Jay Loveston had around his apartment on labor history. And they rented a room for her to use as basically an address of convenience. Uh, she bought the bookcases at Macy's and then runs around doing her spy missions for Angleton. She keeps doing that until 1974, which is also about as long as Loveston keeps taking CIA money. Loveston, of course, much like uh, Louise, would not necessarily do what the CIA told him with the money. He would do whatever he wanted. Uh, One of his CIA uh, case officers used to say, 
are we running Loveston or is Loveston running us? That was a common complaint. But eventually, George Meany didn't like the uh, head of the AFL, did not like the headlines about the fact that one of his fair-haired boys is out there getting it done for the CIA. So Meany says, you have to move to Washington, D.C. We need you at D.C. headquarters. And he says, but all my books are in New York. And he says, I can't help you with that. I don't know any movers. I just yeah. run the AFL-CIO. But, but I can't leave behind the Gompers Research the Library. The Gompers that's, Research that's Library. That's crazy talk. So, in another, you know, reach across the, the, the decades to clasp hands, Jay Loveston refuses to move to a lesser city, especially if it means leaving his books behind. So, he stops doing CIA stuff right around the time that Angleton takes his fall. Anyway, and uh, Loveston dies in 1990. Louise Page Morris continues her life now as a an elderly socialite and uh, figure in the set. Uh, she dies in 2002 at the age of 98. Apparently her last years, she was very heavily dependent on her lawyer who was in cahoots with another weasel lawyer named Francis X. Morrissey, who when the will is probated, it turns out, oh, she left all of her money to Francis X. Morrissey. What are the odds? And her heirs took Francis X. Morrissey to court, and that uncovered the fact that Francis X. Morrissey had been running this scam on, including including the Astors, on all manner of rich, powerful New Yorkers. So he had to go to jail, or at least he had to give the money back, which is the good ending. But what it does imply is that any any sort of magic artifacts or weird spy stuff she'd accumulated might have been in the hands of a weasel lawyer at some point in the uh, late 90s, early 2000s. She donated her papers, her correspondence, to the Hoover Institute at Stanford, which is where Jay Loveston's papers are as well. But, you know, you know how spies are, Robin. They've, they've always got little souvenirs and black books and yeah. things that they don't quite pass on. Idols, maybe, that they found somewhere. Some sort of idol? Who can say? Yeah, the papers with Nyarlathotep in them, they don't go to the right. uh, open stacks. Not to the Hoover. Uh, they, those go to Miskatonic. Right. So if she uh, ended her CIA career in 1974, that means she's still uh, doing it all through the 60s. Through exactly. The fall of Delta Green. So how do we bring her into a fall of Delta Green adventure? She is the world's best NPC. She is the person that you as the GM are just going to be so happy to play because she's got a, a Boston accent. She sounds like uh, Mrs. Howell from Gilligan's Island, but she's super competent you know, knows everybody. So if it's like, oh, you know, we're, we're worried and, you know, maybe she can come save you with, uh, with a general that she happens to have wrapped around a little finger. Maybe she, you know, gives you the intro, but everything you do might get reported back to Angleton. That's her thing is that she is loyal to the man that she called Scarecrow, J.J. Angleton. And so it, it's a situation where she can be immense help, but if she helps you, Angleton gets a look in and Angleton, of course, is crazy paranoid and looking for conspiracies in the American national security establishment, such as, oh, I don't know, Delta Green. So unless you've got Angleton established already as a friendly, the risk is that uh, this wonderful, generous, beautiful, clever, witty, urbane, fun accent to do lady is also selling you down the river to Scarecrow and now what? And that's, and that's the joy of her as a, as an NPC is that she can provide so much, especially introductions to powerful men, help out of jams, back channel communications to Washington. There's so many possibilities for her, but everything that goes through her, you know, she's super smart and she'll uh, pick out the good uh, pomegranate seeds from your, from your litter and send it to Angleton. And then Angleton will know more about you personally, not, 
not just Delta Green, but you guys. Right. And she goes everywhere. She's yeah. Middle East, Europe, Far East. So any globetrotting adventure or, you know, just something weird happening in Boston, you can justify her having her there so she can be a, a recurring contact who they keep bumping into in different places and uh, keep saving their bacon for a price. <laughs> yes. Oh, it, it, uh, no, don't worry. We don't talk about such things as prices in our set. Yes. <laughs> just, you know. Press down hard. You're making two copies. That's the, all. The price is Scarecrow. Scarecrow mm-hmm. knows. Scarecrow knows. Yeah. And then you can have, a, you know, the legacy of her travels can come back, you know, for a modern day game, because obviously she lived a good long life. She, you know, has all manner of connections. And uh, her connection with Loveston means that you can be, you know, there on the forefront of the union movement in the third world, which is mostly a story of a union rises up and is immediately co-opted or killed by the strong man. But somewhere in there, drama happens. And between her exalted society connections and the union's, you know, knowledge of what's going on, you know, in the docks or at the rail yard, you know, that's that's half the investigation done for you. If you can convince Pagey, as she is called, to uh, help you out. And again, just just the minor matter of your name is now in Angleton's round file. Uh, well, I think before uh, our names go in a file, it's time for us to uh, exit this segment and see what other one lays in our path here on the Plain of Huts. The Best of Askfageln is now available at DriveThruRPG. All issues of Phoenix Magazine since 2013. That's spelled F-E-N-I-X. Can now be grabbed in special English editions. Containing stellar gaming material from our own Ken Height. And such other recurring stalwarts as Graham Davis. And Pete Nash. Also find Dice, the gorgeous photo book celebrating that classic gaming accessory. And Freeway Warrior, the series of post-apocalyptic Choose Your Adventures by Joe Dever. And if you speak Swedish, not English. That's Swedish, not English. You can delight in every original issue of Phoenix. And the new Sagebrush and Six Guns role-playing game, Western. How do you say slap leather varmint in Swedish? Uh, oddly, Google Translate refuses to help on that. That's the best of Askfageln on DriveThru. Give us the kind of feedback that keeps this show alive by joining such beloved backers as Tristan Knight, Roger Edge, Lee Candelino, Luke Steyer, and Andrew Laliberti. The chatter of IBM's selectric keys, the gurgle of mid-priced bourbon pouring into a jelly jar, all sounds that resonate from underneath the sign labeled how to write good. And once more, we discussed that very topic, this time at the inception of beloved Patreon backer Benjamin Rawls, who says, y'all often and rightly, by the way, good beginning, Benjamin Rawls, say that a given story would be better if the end was closer to the beginning, but many of the most beloved stories from around the world are both long and winding. So what potential advantages are there to longer stories, and when is it appropriate to give your story a bit more room to breathe. 
Robin, do you want to tackle the uh, category error at the beginning of this question or not? I'm uh, just going to move right on. So if you have a premise rejection, that's where we usually put them. Right. Um, I would just say that although the uh, the Odyssey, to pick a long and winding beloved story, is long and winding, you will note that the Odyssey, while thematically linked in many ways, especially once you get into the meat of the actual poem, is also a bunch of short stories that all work individually and don't take forever. So picaresque narratives are perhaps an attempt to have one's cake and eat it too, narratively speaking, which is maybe why all your really good role-playing campaigns embody or endorse that kind of behavior. Anyway, that said, right. uh, do you so, have... So by story, yeah. we mean novel, right? because uh, that's the format where uh, you are allowed to go long. Mm -hmm. I guess also there is the structure of television shows, but that's such an exception that I'm going to put that off to the side because TV shows often kind of meander unintentionally just in the effort to keep things going. And that's, you know, that's enters the whole area of serial entertainment. Is it mm -hmm. one narrative? Is it many narratives? Like you suggest the Od Odyssey is. Or is it often no narrative as but is the case? The, <laughs> uh, for the rest of this segment, let's assume a single narrative with a through line. And the question is, when is it okay to make that long? And uh, is there in fact such a thing as a bit more room to breathe? And you will notice that as writers become more powerful commercially, generally their books start to get longer. And a series often, sometimes uh, the books will get longer and longer as they go along. And when you are telling yourself that you are writing something in order to create breathing space, I think the question that you should ask yourself is, what does that mean exactly? And this, of course, is where I'm going to bring in my beat analysis system seen in Beating the Story and in Hamlet's Hit Points, which gives you a way of measuring whether the moments that you're including relate to the through line of your piece, that they further the theme or the narrative, or in fact, you have just allowed yourself to kind of noodle around and uh, create a section where there's sort of an idol where people hang out and I don't know, they recount a poem with a bunch of dwarves or their uh, characters discuss what has gone on previously without having a lot of conflict between what they're saying. And so the answer is stories should be as long as they need to be, but what they need to be is in every moment have a reason to justify their existence. And there's a difference between the stuff that you write that kind of explores character and uh, luxuriates in setting and the stuff that's going to keep people riveted. Now, not everybody reads narratives for the same reason. Some people want to engage with all of your descriptive treatment of uh, nature. Uh, more people wanted to do that before photography <laughs> than now. They don't look for that sort of descriptive stuff in fiction anymore. Also, if you look at older narratives, often a lot of the, the stuff that pads it out or uh, makes it longer or more breathy is uh, philosophical maunderings by the writer, mm -hmm. where it used to be uh, writers of fiction were expected to tell you a lot more about life and their notions of life and give you maxims and stuff. That's something that we don't see anymore. So yeah. ask yourself, what is this moment doing? And look at every single moment. And if the moment actually does contribute to tension, either by creating a fear that engages the reader or by relieving that fear, which gives them the moment to breathe. Uh, sometimes an idyll scene where the characters have a party is great because they get to relax a bit. But the modulation of those feelings can happen quite rapidly. And you want to make sure that once you've created the feeling that you're looking for, 
to move on to the next one and to keep going. So is there a lot of narrative there or are you stretching out story points in order to sort of, you know, dip your toes in the pool and sort of uh, see how it feels? So I would argue, I think, that a longer story needs to have more narrative, whether it's a multi-generational story where you follow a bunch of people through a series of uh, situations. But a lot of the great winding narratives that people love are kind of padded. And one of the things that people love about them is that they put the effort in to finish them. <laughs> yeah. And I don't think uh, to, in today's environment uh, where there's a lot of competition for people's attention, I put in the effort to finish it is perhaps not the praise you're looking for. Well, you're, you're once more, we have promised not to talk about television. So I will avoid that tempting side trail, that winding side trail. And let, let's get down to cases, Robin. Uh, when you and I, at least, are thinking of long stories that have a lot of room to breathe and nature descriptions and philosophy and dwarves, we're thinking of Lord of the Rings. You, you don't have to say it, but we're going to say it. Lord of the Rings. Obviously, a successful narrative. Obviously, a magisterial work of fiction. Is it, to your mind, a well-constructed narrative? Or is it what you were just saying, too many beats that don't do anything. It has a lot of beats that don't do anything and it takes forever to get started, but people enjoy being in that world. Uh, but if you compare the tradition that he's following, uh, which is the big 19th century novel where lots of things happen, sometimes the whole point is that they don't really happen and that they're picaresque, as you suggest, or they're other big sprawling narratives. But I think that there are a lot of people who Lord of the Rings is the main book that they've read. And they think they want other books to create the feeling of, a, you know, if the characters go on a long journey, you got to feel like you've been on a long journey and you've got to describe everything at every step. But in a lot of cases and in a lot of novels that follow in that tradition, uh, if I was the editor, I would cut a bunch of that stuff yep, out because yep. it's not about the narrative. It's just about sort of hanging around in the world. And there's uh, uh, and that's what the Silmarillion is for. <laughs> well, I don't think either of us are going to defend the Cimmerillion at any time. That's somebody else's uh, podcast. I'm, I'm arguing there should, there's more stuff that should have been stuffed in the Cimmerillion. <laughs> right, you're just saying even release. more stuff for the appendices, yeah. J.R. R., if that is your real name. Yeah, the I mean, my general approach is I love Lord of the Rings, but you, other author who I do not know or even do know, are not Tolkien and do not pretend you are Tolkien because you aren't and you, you just never will be. I don't care how cool a map is in the front of your book. Not true. And so you look at at, at big, vast, robust stories, your Lord of the Rings and your dunes, and I feel like that length of novel can work. And I think in both of those cases, it does work in a way that is even truer than for, say, um, Les Miserables or Hunchback or, or any of the Victor Hugo novels, which I think are the paradigmatic 19th century novel that you're talking about that just go all over the map and have all kind of crazy, you know, you know, here, let me tell you about what battles are like, you know, why? Right. And, and, and Tolstoy fits in there and <laughs> yeah. Dickens definitely. Right. Uh, Dickens, I think, is a little bit different from Hugo because Dickens, when he gets bored, he just adds more characters. Hugo, when he gets bored, he tells you about the history of the Battle of Waterloo for nine and a right. half million years. So the Dickensian novel, in some ways, is a different model of novel that I find unreadable than the Tolkien-esque secondary world fantasy novel. Right. And fewer people are imitating Dickens today. Which is probably for the best. Yeah. But, but I feel like the difference between Dickens and Tolkien points up 
what you're talking about when you're saying add another beat. And obviously one of the ways that novels are padded out now forever is that we're following a lot of viewpoint characters. So in the olden days, there used to be one guy and he used to go from point A to point B and he'd fight, you know, orcs or gangsters or something. And at the end he'd emerge battered, but wiser. And that would be a novel. And now there's a million guys and they're all wandering around doing things. And again, much of this is the professor's fault for having, you know, a whole fellowship, but note that he kills half of them off halfway through. It's also Arthur Haley's fault. Yeah. But I mean, that's uh, Arthur Haley and the whole James Michener, that whole universe of mid-list, middle-brow novelists that are doing their version of Dickens, but they're doing it without Dickens' narrative focus, I guess is the word. And I can't believe I'm saying this about Dickens, but it kind of is. Everything in Bleak House is about that lawsuit. Everything in David Copperfield is about David Copperfield, despite the zillions of people we meet in both novels. It it sticks to the through line. Exactly. A lot of sprawling narratives with a lot of additional characters or ensemble pieces. And the question then is, does every single character story all pay off? And uh, if it doesn't, why are we spending time with that character? And even if it does, do we need to read five stories that pay off when we could read three stronger stories that pay off or two yeah. stronger stories that pay off. I love how we've, we've, we began by rejecting premise rejection on poor Benjamin Rawls question. And now we're basically fully premise rejecting him. Well, that's because of the answer stick to the through line and make sure all of the beats have a purpose is short. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so um, I, I guess the advantages to be as completely fair minded to uh, beloved Patreon Becker, Benjamin Rawls as we can is that appropriateness is not the question. The question is, how good are you at adding other elements than pure beat, right? How good are That's you? That's a dangerous way to put it, though, because everybody thinks they're good enough. Yeah. And everybody is in sufficiently in love with this cool little moment mm-hmm. that they think that they're going to attract that level of, of attention. And so <laughs> I'm going to be a, a hard case and say, never. Don't never tell yourself that something is cool. Look at why it is cool. You can use my system to do it, which I'd recommend, of course, yeah. uh, because it's my system. Uh-huh. But uh, be brutal and ask yourself, what purpose is this passage serving? Could you put this in the appendix? Yeah. Is it? Is it <laughs> right. you exploring If all it's doing page? is telling you the history of that castle, it goes in the appendix. Right. And the other answer is that it's obviously easier to write a, a short, tight narrative than to weave two or three equally interesting, short, tight narratives that yes. you then weave together and then disappoint the reader every time they're involved in one and switch to the other. Yeah. The attempt to maintain artificial tension rapidly just maintains non-artificial irritation. It's the same part of the brain, just tuned a little bit differently. So I guess rather than continue long and windingly to answer this question, we should cut to the end of the narrative, which is cut to the end of the narrative. Fear is a fractal. And your world is a lie. A horror freed from an antique book reverberates through reality. Shaking things, reordering them and making them run like wax. Doors open to endless Victorian hallways. Where threats stalk the shadows on clockwork limbs, cold metal seeking the warmth of blood and bone. But don't despair. There is hope. 
a king waits for us. And Impossible Landscapes, the first campaign for Delta Green, the role-playing game, waits for you. In PDF now, hardback in May. Twice as big a book as Arc Dream planned. Those naive fools. Hailed as one of the best RPG campaigns ever made. And a masterpiece of surreal horror. While your mind is broken and battered by Impossible Landscapes. Also sees the bonus new release. Delta Green Static Protocol. Which reorganizes the intricate timeline that precedes the main action of impossible landscapes and entries that an ambitious handler can sprinkle in front of players to lure them deeper and deeper into research god help them that's impossible landscapes and its companion static protocol both from the freshly shattered collective psyches of arc dream publishing we stand once more in a corner but not just any corner because up in one part of the corner, there's a cork board, and everything connects to everything else on the cork board. And then we're also feverishly uh, looking at YouTube uh, channels that we've been rabbit-holed into, and we're uh, sweating and twitching and uh, deciding that everybody in the world is trying to destroy us. But that's great, because it means we're at the center of the universe, because why would everybody be trying to destroy us if we weren't the most important person in the world, the person standing in Conspiracy Corner? <laughs> Nice timing on the siren. And this time around in Conspiracy Corner, we're going to, inspired by an article in ArsTechnica.com by a uh, Beth Mole, who's a researcher into bacterial pathogenesis, and it's called, as you would expect from a scientific researcher, Deep Dive into Stupid, because <laughs> this is about a new conspiracy theory that just ain't all that new, it turns it out. It is not new. But it's, it's, it's unfortunately also contagious and uh, perhaps also deadly, uh, because this is germ theory denialism. It turns out that, yes, indeed, there are people who think that so-called medical experts are fools, and that uh, the whole uh, germ theory of, of uh, disease is, is nonsense, that bacteria are just uh, harmless bystanders in your system, perhaps scavengers, perhaps a sign of something wrong, but not the cause of it. Uh, viruses, they're just uh, detritus, ignore them and their, and their ways and their workings, they're nothing, because germ theory is utter uh, nonsense. And uh, it's, it's nonsense nearly on a level with the flat earthers. Because <laughs> everybody still picks on the flat earthers, even if they are also crackpots. Uh, so, Ken, when you uh, saw that this world is bubbling up again through Facebook groups and through YouTubes, you uh, figured, you know what? There's some history that it not explains this, because I think explain is not the correct term. Yeah. But history that uh, repeats itself, at least. Yeah, I mean, the first guys to deny germ theory were the guys who had a big mad on at Louis Pasteur when he invented germ theory. And Pasteur, I don't know how much anyone knows about him, but he was kind of a giant jerk in his personal affect, if not his personal life. And uh, he could be kind of a smart aleck. And so I think that other people who were studying the body in the 1860s, such as Claude Bernard, the guy who came up with the Mill Interior, which is his theory of bodily homeostasis, which turns out to be true and sets the groundwork for all the work that is done about our biome. And if you read about your microbiome, you're going back to Bernard's work. A guy named Antoine Bechamp, also very mad at Pasteur, but also a pioneering researcher in, in science of uh, organic chemistry, 
especially, and then Rudolf Virchow, legendary German biochemist, all of them hated on the germ theory and uh, hated on Pasteur. Virchow, at the end of his life, said, if I had it all to do over again, I wouldn't have done any of my other work. I would have just concentrated on stamping out germ theory. So that's how mad he is. And he's he's a real person. You, you there, There's statues of him and they're deserved. But, you know, this was the 1860s. Maybe we didn't know. Um, their theory, and they all had different versions of it, but Bernard's milieu interior becomes what's called the terrain model. The notion that if your stomach is healthy, your stomach just ticks along being healthy. And if you make your stomach unhealthy by feeding it bad things or uh, living in and squalor. And by bad things, we mean almost all food. Well, that, Bernard doesn't quite get that far. This is modern day, guys. But, you know, rotting food or if you live in squalor and get bit by rats a lot, then your stomach becomes unhealthy. And unhealthy stomachs and unhealthy organs in general attract and create germs. It's not that germs make you unhealthy. It's that unhealthiness makes germs. And this becomes known as pleomorphism. And that is Beschamp's special contribution to this, which is that pleomorphism is the progression of awful things that are wrong with you, beginning with, you know, you you live in filth, and then the tiny little particles of organic matter in your blood become viruses because they are strengthened by all the filth. Then the viruses become bacteria, and then bacteria become fungi. And then when once you're full of fungi, you, you might as well just write it off. That's Beschamp's theory, which in fairness is true. You should you write it off. You do not want to be full of fungi. You do not want to be full of fungi. That is very bad. And so this actually was the model that was used by most of the public health bodies in America, which was, we don't hold with this fancy germ theory, but we definitely hold with, you know, making, you know, the sewer not overflow. And it turns out you, you can get a lot of common ground if you just agree the sewer shouldn't overflow. And and so pleomorphism sort of stays in the substrate of uh, at least American and one assumes French and German public health forever. And this notion that unhealthy surroundings create germs You'll, you'll even still hear it, right? You'll, you'll hear that filth breeds germs, which is, of course, the other way around. But that sort of folk wisdom, which, unlike most folk wisdom, works a treat, don't live amongst squalor, then becomes tapped into the whole health food fadism that emerges in especially America, but everywhere in the world, certainly everywhere in the Western world, as finally you have enough to eat. Right. And so there are now a ton of people who subscribe to the notion that your body is full of toxins and then mm -hmm. you have to periodically cleanse in order to uh, get rid of those toxins. And this is just a super extreme version of that because right. you don't have to then say, and of course, germs don't do anything yeah. to have that belief. Yeah. It's still a wrong belief, but the germ theory denialists, you know, that's not enough <laughs> right. to yeah. wrap an identity around. That just means you have to drink a bunch of blended wheatgrass. Right. You just have to, you know, pay Gwyneth Paltrow $100 every week or whatever right. it is. And, of course, mentioning the fact that you have to pay people for their alternative <laughs> medicines is also getting into an important uh, truth of this, that it also has a long history in not just America, but it definitely has a long history in America of uh, quack cures and patent medicines. And, we've and food again. hucksterism in general. Yeah, hucksterism in general. We've explored a lot on the show that there's you know, a clear connection between circus people, patent medicines, and uh, also belief in the occult and spiritualism. Mm -hmm. And today's people who are selling useless supplements 
are very much part of a, a long uh, tradition of that. And of course, our circus. Yeah, right. And so the uh, sort of the extreme version of this terrain model denialism is that you reject meat, dairy, processed foods, grain, alcohol, salt, fat, all toxins. Basically, you shouldn't be eating anything except clean water, fruit and vegetables. And that's untoxined. And that's just good for you. And uh, somewhere someone is shrieking, but you need protein. And they say, ha, no, you don't. And that is, of course, why they all become horribly skinny, which, again, they think is good. But, you know, you're, you're, you're not even eating beans. This is how uh, ridiculous it is, because, of course, beans right. are little bags of toxins waiting to happen, Robin. Right. And, of course, this is very much, you know, a conspiracy theory wrapped around an eating disorder. Mm -hmm. And it uh, is about bodily control. And this is where we get into the whole psychological appeal of conspiracism. And the idea of bodily purity, of course, is an idea that courses through all sorts of conspiratorial movements. And when a conspiratorial movement gains power, it becomes a totalitarian movement. And the desire to have complete control over your body to the extent of not uh, allowing proteins into it. The fear of toxins is also mirrored in a fear of other people and a desire to dominate and control other people. And this is a red flag that you may not be drawn into just a uh, harmless health fad because, of course, being told that you should not have health insurance because you don't need it if you only <laughs> you just drink. eat all your fruits and veg. Yeah, eat your fruits and veg or telling parents not to take their cancer-stricken children for treatment. That's actively evil That's straight and up evil, yeah, right. Yeah, but that is where this interior belief in avoiding uh, physical toxins, which you have made up. I mean, there's real toxins, but you yeah. know, you've made up these toxins. And a desire to control the outward world, collect, and this is why. And, and I guess this brings us to the question of how to include this in an adventure uh, or a story because I don't think I'm ever going to get to the point where I want to do like an esoteric scenario about COVID, but this allows us to get to the very same roots of that that are very much part of the horror universe, the feeling that everything is trying to poison you, the idea the paranoia, mm -hmm. and then the desire to take that paranoia outward and use it to control and harm other people is central to a lot of games that I've written, most notably The Ezoterrorist and also, in a way, uh, The Yellow King. And so you could definitely have a new, strange, fad diet in which you eat almost nothing and begin to waste away and begin to look kind of skeletal, yet still have a strange, awful, harmful powers. Well, that might be the yellow sign or the effect of the outer dark entities who are feeding off of you. Because uh, the thing about outer dark entities is they don't think humans are toxic at all. They no. think we're entirely delicious and uh, they're uh, willing to uh, spread their influence in order to have uh, many more people step into their maw psychically or physically. Although it would be, it would be interesting if, as a story, to, to turn it around and the people who are radically detoxing and eating only water, fruit, vegetables, and smoothies sold by uh, fading film stars are making themselves more delicious to the, the creatures, that the creatures are causing this magnetism either directly or indirectly. And, you know, your version of garlic and crucifixes is just house a whole uh, sleeve of Twinkies, right? And drink four loco. And then you can fight this monster that feeds on detoxed people because you're 
body is full of horrible toxins now. And that could be a fun thing to play with is the notion. And so you're flipping cultural notions of sanctity because, of course, kids do not house a sleeve of Twinkies and drink Four loco. That is bad. But you're taking that notion that eating well is good and virtuous and flipping it on its head and making it the danger. And I think that is a little more creative and fun than just, oh, once more, the way to drive off the bad guy is to, you know, repeat the thing that everyone already believes. And whether that's Jesus is, you know, Lord, or whether that's, you know, get out and vote kids, it's still relatively conventional thinking. And in an unknown army-y, esoteristy world, I think unconventional thinking, ways that you damage yourself to damage the uh, the evil, is is a more interesting question, right? That novels of purity, by and large, you know, Dracula accepted, don't work. Whereas novels of impurity uh, or games of impurity become exciting and fun. I want to mention briefly before we drop out of this whole universe that the danger zone of germ denial theory, as opposed to say the flat earth or astrology, uh, it's very similar to your sort of um, QAnon deep state paranoia, because it is absolutely true that we eat too much processed food, sugar, refined sugar is super addictive. You should be aware of what you're putting in your mouth, not just eat it because you're there. These are all good habits. Also don't live in squalor, but focusing too much on that, you, you wind up exaggerating a conventional virtue and it turns evil in the same way that you know, being suspicious of what the government says, which is just sensible, suddenly can become, you know, full on reptoids are out there drinking adrenochrome. And that becomes a, a problem in many ways, evil uh, in many cases, just as much as, you know, not sending your kids to the hospital. So the, the slippery slope, the inversion of, you know, good, sensible, uh, proactive behavior or the extension of it into this is what I think makes germ denialism maybe a little scarier to people than astrology. I mean, there's astrology is just nonsense. You believe it, don't believe it. There's, I'm sure that people have killed each other over their Zodiac sign, but it's not a a slippery slope in the same way that, uh, that this is. So that's another one of the fun things. And you can add that to a narrative as a character who's keeping very healthy and they jog and, and they're, you know, they only drink, you know, filtered water and everything else. And they're vegan. And you're like, well, are they in league with the esoterists? Are they a victim? Are they just, you know, really health conscious. And it's that, that on the bubble question that again adds indeterminacy and therefore interest to the proceedings, right? Right. Because it's something that an idea that is just so p- part of the common discourse. And as you point out on one level, correct, that, yeah. you know, you should watch what you eat and you should exercise. But of course the, the boring answer is that if you watch what you eat a little, and you are lucky enough to be able to afford, you know, to have a good mix of fresh food in along with what else you're doing and you exercise a little, that that's basically all you can really do. And then the rest of it is whether which of the big diseases gets you if you don't get in an accident. And uh, mm-hmm. your actual doctor is pretty laid back about a lot of this stuff. If you have an actual good doctor who knows their stuff, but that doesn't give you an identity. That doesn't give you a thing to worry about all of the time. And that certainly doesn't put you at the center of the universe because you know the truth Yeah, where 95% of the people are, are, have been fooled and either you're messianic about that or you're just uh, being smarty pants because a, a lot of the, you know, if you look at the way that these people talk amongst themselves and to each other, it's catastrophizing and it's full of contempt for other people. I mean, some of this is just the social media that everything is catastrophizing and full of contempt for the outgroup, but certainly those intensify in cults 
uh, broadly speaking, or conspiracy theory groups, because that's all they have in common, right? If, if they had any genuine things in common, right? If they were also Packers fans, they could talk about that. But no, everything has to be about this. And therefore, all the social rewards go to who can be the loudest and craziest about this, because at least it's something new and interesting. Right. And it makes them usefully unsympathetic if we want to have a, a story of, you know, just people who go from eating muesli to discovering their sugar in muesli to then uh, going off the deep end to deny the very existence of, of germs. But if there's one thing that we cannot deny, it is the fact that this podcast goes for a limited time. And at the end of that time, we end the podcast. But after another period of time, there's another one. And we'll be back for another one next week. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Pelgrane Press. Ask for Gown. Arc Dream. Dark Tower. And Pro Fantasy Software. Music, as always, is by James Simple. Audio editing by Rob Borges. Get your priority question-asking access by supporting our Patreon at patreon.com backslash Ken and Robin. Keep this show pasteurized and safe for use alongside such illustrious backers as... Joe Webb. Joss Borlace. Ludovic Chavant. Chris Farrell. And Monster Talk. Wear this show or drink it from a mug with Ken and Robin merch at tpublic.com slash user slash Ken Robin. Festoon yourself with our latest design, Foxy Dragon. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time, and once again, we will talk about stuff. <laughs>